Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I am Bo Sanders. And here we are. And here we are. Today, we're going to do some listener feedback. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving. We're going to talk about two-party politics. We're going to talk about Native American spirituality and where it overlaps with Christianity, I guess. Maybe even and a little... Sal- the topic of salvation. salvation. Just a small topic yeah. of salvation. Hmm. Yeah, the, yeah the, <laughs> the small topic. <laughs> uh, Randy, you have been busy on the interwebs. You've been doing roundtables and Zooms, and podcast interviews, uh, all sorts of stuff. Any Anything you want to highlight or point people towards? Well, um, you know, everybody loves a Native American around Thanksgiving, right? And in November's our month, so you know I usually stay pretty busy in November. <laughs> and, wow. and I'm still waiting for all those uh, calls and letters and emails, uh, you know, outside of November. But no, just kidding. But that's kind of how it works. It's like, oh man, my November is going to be a really busy month. <laughs> wow. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, we we I I posted. Uh, a couple articles that I've done. I did, um, you know, I, I, if you look up Randy Woodley Thanksgiving, you'll find like five, six different articles of Sojourners and uh, Huffington Post. I did one for the Huffington Post that I posted um, an interview with Time Magazine where they talked about uh, how to discuss real Thanksgiving with age appropriateness with uh, oh. a different different age kids and. Yeah, so I posted some of that, and you know, I got a little bit of uh, feedback uh, because the Native American communities is divided, and thus, you know, because everybody's taking their cue from Native Americans, um, that makes a lot of people divided over it. And and uh, I think without going into like you know what actually happened and all that, I, I'll just bring up what I see as the main flaw uh, of. One, there are two myths now. One myth is the old American myth that says, you know, oh, the pilgrims invited the natives to this meal and they had peace and friendship and everything was hunky dory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we forget about what happened later. That's the American myth. Because the American myth is always like not willing to talk about its own mistakes, right? Okay. That's that's the difference between indigenous myth and American myth. And then the other is the sort of um, kind of what I would call um, uh, um, l- more liberal view, which is like, you know, uh, um, yes, we had this dinner together and there was genocide. And, you know, uh, you know, I got people saying because I posted a picture of natives and pilgrims together at the table and the, this never happened. And, you know, like, you know, they they killed all the native people and, you know. And yeah, and that's that's true too. But it's not true that 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 table didn't happen. Mm. Um, they jumped from a like sixteen twenty ish, the sixteen twenties to the sixteen seventies, real quickly, as if there were no years in between those. Mm. There, there were, uh, there was a generation of uh, relative peace. And what I say is like that's our myth, right? That, you know, we don't want to hide what the genocide that occurred after or hide the fact that the um, the pilgrims were already basically the roots of white supremacy was there. They already thought the land was theirs. You know, when they got there, they thought they were superior. 
you know, um, uh, William Bradford said, you know, surely God has wiped out the inhabitants when he found a bunch of uh, graves and and mass graves of the Pequot village who had died from um, exposure to disease. Surely God has wiped out the inhabitants to make room for us. You know, of course, that's of course that's God, God's going to do because God loves us more than He does these ha- heathens. You know, savages. So um, all that is true, but there was this relatively short period. You know, it could be between uh, as much as twenty-five years um, where there was peace. Huh. And there are so few of those. My argument is there are so few of those in our history. There are some, but there are so few of those that we need to actually take those and mythologize those. Let's make those our narrative. Let's make those our story. Because if, we, if we're if we not going to, you know, like we, we can't say all the bad stuff without saying the good stuff too. Right? Oh, and yeah. I understand, you know, I understand the Wampanoags. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, this happened to them. It happened on their shore. They know the betrayals and everything else. And they don't want to perpetuate this, the, the American myth. I understand that completely. Um, but what I'm saying is like, you know, if we're going to heal, we've got to all heal together. We don't neglect to talk about the truths. Mm. We say it, whether it's ugly or whether it's beautiful. And there are these sort of beautiful spots. So let's not forget about those too. It's, that would be wrong as well. So. Mm. You know, that, Randy, I love that. You know, this morning we put out our latest episode on the myth of redemptive violence, and you talk about actually the need for having, um, putting our energy into creative peace and really investing in strategies of peace, not just weapons of war. And, um, Boy, it really ties in. Hey, that brings me, you know, for as far as listener feedback, I got a message from an activist in uh, upstate New York. He lives in a very uh, woke world. He messaged and wanted us to talk about this. He says, this year I've seen more people posting that if you celebrate Thanksgiving in any way, you are complicit in participating in the native erasure. I've also seen several posts about the history of Thanksgiving as a national holiday beyond occasional proclamations arguing it wasn't a consistent national celebration until Lincoln. And it was an abolitionist holiday in support of the Union. People in the South didn't celebrate it. And only later did the U.S. Victorians layer over myths about the pilgrims onto it. Anyway, some fascinating stuff about it, and I'd love to hear you talk about it. Well, my response, and again, people should go to my Huffington Post article, basically, about uh, Thanksgiving. I think it's like the different sides of Thanksgiving or something like that. Uh, Huff, just go Thanksgiving, Randy Woodley, Huffington Post, and you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the things I stress is the fact that this was just another celebration of thanks with Native Americans. Our people have been giving thanks on Turtle Island here uh, for millennial millenniums wow um and uh and this is just one more it was a natural thing for them to have a feast and three four days of you know uh messing around and horsing around and having games and probably gambling Mm. and you know having horse races and foot races and you know a lot of people were drinking beer because that's what the pilgrims drank back then so i imagine there was a whole lot of joking and uh you know i mean that 
that to me is sort of like uh like th- this is the time maybe when the pilgrims let down their guard let yeah. down a little bit of their white superiority you know their their feigned uh um chosenness and said you know we're gonna we're gonna eat with these people for and we're they're gonna be here for a few days you know i mean basically the the natives showed up close to 100 natives showed up um because they heard gunfire and what it was was the you know, the, the pilgrims were running around shooting their guns in the air because they were celebrating, right? Yeah. And then they showed up and the natives were like, oh, they're having a feast, but they didn't invite us. I guess we got to go hunt down some food. So they did. And then, you know, and the and the pilgrims were like, uh, uh, yeah, we need to get some more chairs, you know. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, You didn't get our invitation? Uh, <laughs> so they were anyway, actually- it's... Uh, it's a kind of a humorous thing if you think about it from an Indian yeah. perspective. Yeah. And you said they were actually coming to their defense. They thought that because they lived at peace, if there were gunshots, they must be an, an outside intruder. Right. So they'd already made a, a peace pact where they would help one another. Right. Yeah. An alliance. Yeah. All right. Well, on a different subject, uh, a Canadian listener wrote in and heard our frustration with the limitations of this two-party system and this just incredibly polarized government mire that we find ourselves in and, uh, you know, really identified, you know, especially coming from a different perspective of coalition governments when you have six or eight parties represented and you have to work together, but wanted us to talk about possible positive or constructive ways of um, getting out of that uh, round and round cycle of uh, just the two-party system of conflict and and adversarial mentality. So I had a thought I wanted to run by you. Okay. Yeah. I'm nonplussed. (laughs) (laughs) So the word that comes to my mind and and I only hear it used in really specific ways. And I think it would be a helpful word for us to use in, in more generic ways is the word solidarity. And what I would like to see us do to embrace solidarity is to become concerned about issues that don't directly affect us. Because if we each only vote and participate and invest in issues that directly impact us, then we end up reinforcing the current structure and the conflict and animosity and the confrontational uh, politics that we find ourselves in that has led to this government gridlock. But if those of us who have the ability to do so cared about things that didn't impact us directly, then we could begin to change some of the boundaries and borders that are so heavily defensed. So for instance, I don't have children of my own, but I have become very concerned about the state of our public schools and specifically the way that property taxes are administered and impact 
so that in a specific neighborhood, the property tax funds, right, say the elementary school. But because of the breakdown in our civic organization, that has changed. And so funding in public schools of things like whether it's arts or sports, after school activities, things that, you know, were so formative for me are being done away with. And so parents spend a lot of their time now having to do fundraisers of selling Christmas trees or paper products door to door or like Girl Scout cookies or whatever it is to raise the funds to keep these programs alive. Teachers are impacted by it because they end up spending their own money. But then people who don't want the teachers to get raises are against teachers unions like if we all only invest and vote in our own self-interest. So it's going to take some solidarity, which is to care about things that don't impact you directly. So for me, even though I don't have children in the educational system, it is to care about how our public schools are funded and specifically how the breakdown in public funding comes through our property taxes, and our real estate system. So that's my idea, is to care about things that don't impact you directly. It's the only way we transcend this divide. Yeah, I think you hit on on the key, which is caring. Um, The problem, of course, is that most Americans don't care outside of their own self-interest. How do they do it in places like Denmark? How do they do it in Norway? You know, uh, aren't they both? Aren't how they, do they socialist countries? <laughs> um, is I, that what they are? I, don't, I think so, but I'm not sure. So our problem is we can't decide how socialist we want to be, right? How much do we really care about? the children, the disenfranchised, those safety nets. You know, we want to sort of feign some kind of uh, support system, but we really don't want to invest in those support systems. And so, but man, we love to invest in military, you know, Mm. we love to invest in protecting corporate interest. And so the, the, the problem is really about caring because your politicians and I can't, maybe I'm so jaded now, but I, Let's just say we had a third party Green Party. Okay, I voted for Green Party in the past different times. Do you think that that they are all of a sudden going to like remain faithful to their principles when the only chance they have of getting reelected is by getting corporate sponsors? Um, and, and so it's like, well, I've got to stay in, right? So your first rule of politics, get elected. Second rule of politics, get reelected. <laughs> Yeah. So we have a caring problem. You know, we need the care bears to come rescue us here. Oh, That's the, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and why is that? Because we don't, and, and this is part of the problem of the church and Christians. Sure. Uh, they don't preach the common good. Right. Too often. What is the common good? It's like, you know, the common good is, th- is very simply this. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And if we could care at least that much 
we would be taking care of the children. We would be taking care of, you know, a healthcare system. We would be taking care of the whole education system would be uh, uh, done differently, but we just don't care enough. And so I think you've hit it, hit on it, but I don't know if, um, if we can get there. I, I, I'm not sure we can get there politically. Randy, our third subject for the day is somebody wanted to know about Native American spirituality. This is actually something that a lot of people uh, ask questions about, and it's possible uh, connections maybe to uh, Christian religion or maybe some contrast points. And I figured I would just tee you up and let you swing for the fences there to use a softball analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Here I go. (laughs) And he pulls back. He's ready for the swing and a miss. (laughs) All right. So there's a lot of different ways to answer that or respond to that, right? So one, I could say, um, you know, I only really know about my own spirituality. Mm. And uh, and so I can only talk about that. But uh, I, I think I've done enough research and been around enough communities, Native communities to see some stuff and participated in so many things over the years that uh, maybe I can say a few things, but I want to be sure I'm just talking for myself and my own opinions being expressed here or mine. Um, but I, I think you know, if we think back to the, the first white settlers on this land, uh, think about Jamestown, think about, uh, um, you know, the pilgrims at the Mayflower and all that kind of stuff. And, their dilemma was that they were people who uh, had the name Christian and by and large were meeting a people who did not have that name, but acted more quote unquote Christian or Christ-like, maybe is a better way to say it, than did they. So that's a dilemma because the folks that they met who acted more Christ-like than themselves uh, had never heard of this Jesus or the Bible or Christ. Um, and, and that was a great dilemma. And, uh, but they didn't consider them human enough to really understand, by and large, they didn't consider them human enough to investigate and understand why their society was so more, much more Christ-like, shall we say, not perfect, not utopia, but much more Christian in its worldview are much more like Jesus taught in his worldview than I think that's still the case. Mm. I think traditional native beliefs are much more like Jesus taught the same ethic that we would call what I call this shalom sabbath jubilee construct throughout scripture which to me is the essence of what jesus taught or if you want to use religious language the essence of the gospel instead people have made this sort of formulaic uh, requirement on what it means to be a follower of jesus and they that's that comes from a very western mindset and they've gotten it wrong so it's actually heresy So evangelicalism is heresy in the strictest sense. The way that that evangelicals look at Scripture, the way that they uh, talk about salvation, 
Um, now, does it mean they're all wrong? Nope. Does it mean that um, there's a whole lot of adjustment that has to be done in order for them to actually be more like Jesus? Yes. And it's not just about like doing the right things. It's like how we perceive them. And so um, I would say that the, that the, the problem with um, Western Christianity is it's not indigenous enough. It's not localized. It's universalized. It's, it's the, the religion of the colonizer. It's wow. empire. Yeah. Empire, he said. Yeah. You know, that is so interesting. Let me tell you what I thought was going to happen and why your framing of this is intriguing. So I thought that you might take, say, 10 talking points on one side and maybe 10 on another and do a compare and contrast, right? That you just lay them side by side and see how they were similar. One of the interesting things about being in dialogue with you that I'm, I'm constantly challenged by is, you know, in your approach to go back to sort of the root or some might say the, the fundamental issue and to trace it all the way back, you know, to do the genealogy all the way back to even those first encounters of the settler colonialists with the indigenous population, the natives, it just to do it that way, you see that this is a long standing problem. And that even the quote unquote Christianity that was imported and imposed came embedded with all sorts of other things that technically aren't really the Christian religion in its ideal at all. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we like to have this view of ourselves to think that, oh, like uh, if you're a, a Christian, like, oh, I'm, I read the words of Jesus and there it is in pure form and I follow it. But actually we, we read those with extreme thick lenses on <laughs> that have gone through really 3000 years of Western uh, uh, influence and philosophies that have um, like surfaced and been stronger at different times, but have, have are embedded now within those eyes that look back and go, oh, I can follow Jesus in a pure form. No. Um, you know, even, uh, you know, when you start digging in the culture and then that that's one thing. So people like digging the culture and go, this, 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 but they have to deconstruct their own culture and take off their own lenses. And that takes, that's a long process. You know, people don't think they're influenced by platonic dualism, individualism, you know, um, 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 hierarchies. They don't think that they've been influenced by, you know, a Hobbesian worldview that, that says that, you know, the best we can have are, you know, hierarchies and benevolent dictators. And, you know, they, you know, or Rousseau, uh, the worldview of Rousseau, who the philosopher who, you know, these questions that they ask about social inequity and things like this, they don't, and they, they don't realize how much they've been influenced. Mm. I realize 
some time ago that I was influenced by all of these factors and I needed to start peeling the layers back. And that's why I always try to go back to the roots of these things. So the the conservative, liberal, progressive, however you want to put it, um, debate and in really war that we're fighting in our country right now, the culture war, goes back to the very views that I just mentioned. And Christianity basically sides with a Hobbesian view, uh, this in an Augustinian view, theologically, that human beings are born sinful. And, you know, the best you can get is the, you know, sort of benevolence here on earth. And, and then, you know, when we all get to heaven, things are going to be okay. And that's a utopian vision, right? So, you know, it's like, the, the point being, an indigenous worldview, that which is closer to the earth, closer to living in relationship with the things of the earth and a a pure form of relationship with the creator. And again, not in any means perfect. Um, Lots of flaws, everything else, but you work those things out over time and you learn from your mistakes. You notice that Native American myths always uh, admit their mistakes, Hmm. but American myths try to hide their mistakes as if they just sort of arose in this perfect form of freedom and democracy. And now we just need to live it out. Right. Uh So um, all of this goes into that question that this person is asking about native spirituality and Christianity. Um, So if I wanted to answer it very simply, I would answer sort of like when Jesus said to the Pharisees that, the sinners and the prostitutes, uh, the Amharas, the untouchables and the prostitutes and those who are there condemning are much closer to uh, the, the realm and rule of God than they were. I would say that traditional uh, Native Americans who are traditional and following their path of their, their indigenous traditions are much closer to Christ than most Western Christians. Oh, my gosh. All right, we can come back to that. Let me tell you, if somebody asked me this as sort of an outside observer, the first place I would start would be the Western influence of the the split between the natural world and sort of human consciousness or the mind. And so that you know, gets blamed on Descartes, so that Cartesian uh, dualism uh, between matter, you know, substance and thought or mind, matter and mind. Descartes was was a late bloomer. I mean, this starts all the way back with Plato. So, yeah, no, that's, yeah. One more thing about, since we're mentioning, you know, we mentioned Thomas Hobbes, we mentioned uh, uh, Rousseau, um, Rousseau, and we mentioned Descartes, and like we like to look at the past and pick these people and go, oh, weren't they great thinkers? But most of these people were just expressing in an aristocracy that they lived in. Most of them didn't know any social inequality themselves. And they all basically had the, the um, privilege of writing these things down and having the influence. Mm. But probably lots of common people had these ideas as well. So mm. we like to hold these people up as if like they're really special you know, uh, but the, the point is, is they're, they're probably just mimicking things that they heard and then writing on about them. And I'm not saying we should take anything away from them. I'm just saying we give too much credit to them. Oh, okay. that's interesting. Go ahead. That's a little bugaboo I wanted to make. To go. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So to circle back, the biggest contrast I see in its modern contemporary expression is, you know, the Western mind really views 
sort of this world as a thing, right? Almost an inanimate object. And it's it's right. not it's objectified. Yeah, it's an object to be studied and measured and quantified um, versus the, uh, a human, right? And to deny that we are embodied and that we are part of creation. So creation is over there. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. get from that thing what we need. So like an extraction approach of mm -hmm. harvesting resources because they are things. Trees are things. Rocks are things. Animals are things. And separating that out in an, into an entirely different category of human existence. Well, you know, that's called a split reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have a split reality. Uh, if you understand yourself outside of the creation process of the whole community of creation as rather than a part of it, mm -hmm. then you've, you've created a false reality and you're living in two different realities. You know what uh, the, uh, DSM, whatever it is, five or six, yeah, or whatever it is now, the psychology diagnosis. When you have a split reality, they call that schizophrenia. Mm. Schizophrenia. So yes, Christianity is a Western Christianity is a very schizophrenic religion. We suffer for it too, because we do try and navigate these two realities, one being the physical world and one attending to the quote unquote spiritual as if they were two different things. And we really have separated them out quite powerfully. And so in one category of things, you have like biology and the economy uh, and, and psychology even maybe over there. And then, but you have spirituality as its own standalone category. And so you can live pretty much how you want during the week, let's say. But on this one day, you attend to this other part of yourself. And that's where you, you know, believe in the spirit, let's say the spiritual realm, mm -hmm. as if it's a different place, a different existence. Mm -hmm. So we suffer for it because sometimes our spirituality often doesn't match up to say, our diet, what, you know, what we take in or our spending and our credit card debt. And because we have partitioned out and separated these different areas of life, and we have placed one above all of the others, that's the hierarchy is that spirituality or, you know, the religious life is elevated above these other things. And so yeah. they, they may or may not intersect, but one is definitely more important than the others. Yeah. So, I mean, this goes all the way back to, it's sort of a, you know, very, I'm going to simplify it. Platonic dualism goes back to Plato. Maybe it was Socrates too. We don't really know exactly what Socrates um said himself and what Plato said Socrates said because all Socrates writings are within Plato so but but so let's just blame Plato okay of this idea of the of the split reality between the ethereal which could be spirit mind all these kinds of uh, things and the products of those things like psychologies and other things and theologies um, and um, the material so ethereal and material and they get preference to the ethereal. 
So that gets once once you start splitting reality like that, then everything has to be in a hierarchical order. Everything, one thing has to do with the ethereal, and it's better always than the material. And so uh, once you're into that, then what does that do? Then you have to start dividing things and 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 uh, binary thinking and uh, very extreme categorizations. Uh, and then those are all ranked, you know, uh, according to orders. And, um, and, and it just keeps slicing and dicing reality all the way down to the nth degree. And um, that's the kind of faith that Western Christianity has brought to America. It doesn't belong here. That, that is not the faith of the land. Oh, wow. The land itself has taught indigenous people how to live with each other and the creator over time. And that is an imported faith. Now, can it be integrated? Yes, it can, but not in the way that, uh, not from a Western sort of DNA uh, approach. It can't be because you use the same DNA, you're going to end up with the same, you know, uh, replication of the parents. (laughs) So, now you have to introduce new parents. Well, who are the new parents? The new parents are indigenous people, indigenous traditional indigenous thinkers. Um, so I wouldn't trust any Christianity, since we're talking about Christianity and indigenous spirituality, I wouldn't trust any Christianity that didn't uh, first pass through the lenses of traditional indigenous people. Wow. Two quick reflections. The first is one of the, the flaws of the, the Western split, the split reality, is that the world, you talked about the material world, it's corrupted or depraved or flawed, right? And so it's not to be trusted. It is to be dominated and subdued. That's a theological argument, right? Yeah. 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 And so. Christianity. Yes. Uh, but you know what your, uh, your comment made me think of is, uh, I heard this story and it's just been really sitting <laughs> with me a lot is, um, somebody was lost. They were driving and they were lost and their GPS wasn't, uh, getting them where they needed to go. It didn't seem to, to know. And so they pulled over old style and just asked a local for directions. And they said, uh, you know, handed them the address and said, I need to get here. How do I get here? And the person responded, well, for, for start, I wouldn't start here. That's <laughs> <laughs> so what it makes me think of. It's like, well, I want to yeah. get over there. And you're saying, uh, okay, but if, if that's where you want to get to, I wouldn't start here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. There's a sort of an old uh, Mainer joke, right, for Maine, for Maine people. Yeah. Where, you know, because they're, they're, they're very uh, proud of the fact that a person's uh, uh, born in Maine and all that kind of stuff. And there's one of, one of their jokes goes, you know, the stranger stops and asks a, a, a fellow from Maine who's sitting on his porch, you know, uh, you know, hey, how do I get to this place? And he says, well, you can't get there from here. <laughs> a, I love it. So, uh, and, and what I'm saying is you can't get to a, a um, and I don't even want to use the term Christianity, you can't get to the Jesus way, if that's what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, in this land from Western Christianity. You can't get there. 
You have to deconvert. Exactly. Oh, and reconvert. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a tall order. Now, a lot of people argue with me. They have sincere faith experiences. And, and I'm not saying that an experience doesn't override all the theological mumbo jumbo that we throw out. But what I'm saying is if you try to make sense of it from that Western perspective, you can't get there from here. That is interesting. You know, one of the things when I help people deconvert or sort of process, deconstruct, whatever, their religious upbringing, uh, which is primarily what I do. I mean, that's a big part of my job, my vocation, if you will. One of the things I have to convince them of to just as a, as a building block to start with is that experiences are great, but they don't come containing their own meaning. They have to be interpreted. And so Mm -hmm. the way you interpret your experience, I'm not saying that thing didn't happen to you. I think it did happen to you. I'm saying you may not have done the right thing with it after that. That if you felt like it was a self-validating experience, right, that it was a rubber stamp on the way you thought about things at that moment, then you'll never have the hunger, the desire that it takes to say that experience was great, right? But what did I do with it? How did I view it? What did I, did I then put that on others that, right, like, the interpretation of the event. But so often people that I encounter, they seem to view religious experience as a self-validating, self-contained stamp of approval. Hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of, I have several thoughts about that. One is that, um, do we really need to explain those experiences? Mm. I I think, you know, it's good to, for a sort of like, uh, um, just so that we all see things through different eyes, right? But um, do we need to put them through the machinery of uh, Western Christianity? Um, because that's generally what people do who are Christians, right? They they go, I've got this this sort of machine, and I have to run my experience through this machine. And if it jives, you know, then I'm good. But if it doesn't, then I need to discard that experience, right? Well, an experience is an experience. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that is your own. Um, but I think the problem goes when we try to take what is our own experience and make that other people's experiences. Hmm. With the time we have left, let me ask you a really a pointed question. If you, instead of contrasting with Christianity, which you've done well, But if somebody were curious about deconverting in order to move towards a more indigenous perspective and and, uh, experience, what things would you hold up for them as an invitation? Should they seek out a sweat? Should they visit uh, a powwow? Do they go to a talking circle? What, like, where would be, how would they do it? Where, how would they begin that migration? You probably didn't mean it this way, but it's a perfect segue to introduce the new book I have coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I did not mean it that way, but let's do it. 
<laughs> so the thing is, is that, um, you know, I generally, as people know, uh, who follow our podcast and listen, I, I address things pretty directly, you know, head on, yes. uh, theologically yes. and otherwise. And, um, but I thought, you know, everybody doesn't receive things that way. People receive things differently. And so I thought, let's, what's another way that we can basically get people to begin deconstructing their own worldviews. And, and we do quite a bit of that in our book. Um, you know, uh, the, the little book we had out called uh, Decolonizing Evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's a good start. But, but this, this book that I've got coming out called uh, Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth, my hope was is that through people seen from an indigenous perspective, at least one indigenous perspective, hearing my experiences, hearing my stories, and hearing my thoughts um, that might be different than their own would help them. And there's there's ten categories in this that sort of help walk us through. Um, and uh, these little bite-sized reflections, and then an action point to break up the dualism. Uh, that they can actually do at the end of that uh, reflection. And so if somebody could do a hundred days of that, or even use that as a, maybe a devotional or, you know, these reflections or whatever, that it might begin to change the way that they think and they might begin to see things differently. And I, I think that's the case. I hope that's the case. And we're actually going to do a hundred day journey on my Facebook site um, together with people. So um, yeah. So anyway, watch for all that, but, um, I mean, I wrote a hundred different ways if, to answer your question that people can begin to deconvert and reimagine from an indigenous perspective, oh, just wow. in that little book. So and that's um, January then, 4th, right? Yeah, it comes out uh, January 4th. It can be pre-ordered now. Um, and yeah, I think we're, you know, we'll do a whole program about that at some point mm-hmm. here. Coming up, I believe we've talked about. But the other thing is just begin reading people with different experiences from different places, different uh, thought processes, different worldviews, especially indigenous peoples, and begin to um, challenge your own because the real work is not, it's pretty easy to begin to see from an indigenous perspective once you decentered your own Western wow. worldview. And so decolonized it or deconstructed it or how, how, uh, however you want to think about that. Mm. Once you start that process, it's like I was talking to somebody yesterday, um, Native American woman who, who we've just started to mentor. And, um, and, you know, as soon as her eyes were open, it was like everything opened to her. Right. It was wow. like, whoa, you know, now I begin to question all these things. And, and then, you know, and it's an exciting, liberating, uh, faith energized process. And so, um, so yeah, uh, I think the best thing and, and, and put yourself in situations in which you're uncomfortable, put yourself, uh, and, and this is especially for either really, if you're like a, a white person or maybe you're a native person or an African-American person, whatever, and you think you've succumbed to Western worldview, then put yourself in a position where you're around people who don't think that way, because that will begin to challenge you and let you see like the normal you have is not really 
the normal maybe you should have. And so, um, to, yeah, there's, so there's, you know, hearing different voices um, through whatever means possible, putting yourself in situations where you uh, are uncomfortable so that that discomfort can cause you to begin to chip away at your own sort of sacred cows that you have. And uh, yeah, and, and then I've got this easy 100-day walk you know, that uh, I'm trying to influence people with. So, because I, I, a couple things. One is it's just not healthy for any of us. This Western worldview is schizophrenic. It's destructive. It's, um, uh, it's toxic. And, um, and it is not going to sustain us on this planet. It is mm-hmm. going to end us as a human race. And so we have to, it's not whether, you know, a, a, really a choice. It's if you want to, see future generations of human beings on this planet, you have to begin to decolonize, Mm. shed your Western worldview and begin to indigenize to a more appropriate theology to this land. Mm. Wow. That is a great note to end on. If I were to throw in one thing as a pointer for somebody who's going to go on this journey, I would also say to them, and you you can tell me if this is a good idea, I would also say to them, plan on gardening in the spring. After this 100 days, you're going to want to connect with the dirt. So, But here's my caution. Don't buy miracle Grow. Don't buy Roundup weed killer. Don't buy seeds from out of state because you don't know what you're going to do yet. But just know, just make a mental priority and know you're going to put your hands in the dirt this spring, but don't do anything else yet.